0: Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and as you know by now, we're building a campaign for Deadlands Classic that you can run for your group, starting tonight if you're so inclined. Now, before we start this week's show, I need to offer up an apology for last week's episode. Not the content so much, but the audio quality. I had a number of issues trying to get the episode recorded, between equipment issues and timing issues, so the episode you got last week was recorded and edited in a hurry, which left it not quite as technically sound as I would have liked it to be. Needless to say, the person responsible for that has been flogged, and the gear has been quality checked for all productions moving forward. Okay, so I'm kidding about the first part. I'm the one responsible, so there was no flogging. Sorry. So with the public apologies covered, let's get into building our campaign. Of course, we begin with our recap from last week. When last we gathered, our intrepid adventurers had wrapped up their business in Denver and were leaving for Salt Lake City. It might've been by train, but we also covered what went down if they went by horse, and I'll refer you back to last week's episode for a refresher and reminder. Once the group got to Salt Lake City, they had to figure out where Francis Coulson was. If they were working for Mayor O'Toole, they knew they needed to check into the Golden Dragon Inn and leave a message at the desk for Abe. If they weren't, then they had some legwork to do, and we determined that it would take about a week to get that legwork completed to the point that they would have the information they needed to take action. For those who left the note for Abe, they got a response the next morning, noting that Colson was staying at the Salt Lake City Hotel and was well-protected by gunmen. That's the same information the other group would get after a week of schmoozing the populace. Once they found their target, it was time for recon. I noted that if they chose to actually go into the hotel, they'd be able to talk to the person at the desk, but if they got too nosy, two individuals dressed in all black and wearing black masks would assault them and a gunfight would ensue with four more black clad folks joining in. However, if they minded their P's and Q's, they'd be able to get in and get out without much issue. They also noted that there weren't a lot of people checking in, and those who checked out seemed rather disturbed. I realize I didn't expand on that, so I will in a moment. The basic idea of the hotel was discussed, and again, I'll refer you back to last week's episode for that. The group eventually dispensed or otherwise dealt with eight of the ten men in the hotel, and accessed the room with Coulson in it. There were two men in there, guns drawn and threatening to kill Coulson if the group didn't relent. Of course, the group didn't relent, so it became another fight, which our group should have won rather easily. That left them alone with Francis Coulson, and that's where we left off last week. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that I didn't give the reason why folks checking out of the hotel seemed disturbed. So, if you're using the City of Gloom book, this is explained in pretty good detail. But if you aren't, here's the basics. Several years ago, a Native American shaman was prohibited from checking into the hotel, and he placed a curse on it, stating that no one would ever have a good night's sleep in that hotel. From a gameplay standpoint, the players have to make a vigor check with a target of five if they sleep there. If they make it, they get a decent night's sleep. If they don't, they have nightmares so real that they're unable to sleep. Which explains why the folks checking out seem so disturbed. And for the record, the group could have discovered this nugget of information during their information gathering prior to accessing the hotel if they were out gathering information. If they were unfortunate enough to actually be staying there, well, hopefully they made their rolls. Okay, so getting into the build-in portion of the show, let's pick up where we left off last week. The group has Coulson alone in his room. Obviously, all of the gunshots that went off aren't going to go unnoticed, so the group literally is on the clock to get answers out of Coulson and or kill him if they're so inclined to. From a game mechanic standpoint, tell the group you're setting a timer for 30 minutes of real time. This means that any discussion between group members and decision making will be considered as a part of that time. The purpose here is to prompt the group to work together, but work quickly, as by this point you may have noticed your group takes large amounts of time to make decisions, even though the actions they take don't take much time in game time. So long as they get everything done in less than 30 minutes, they can get out of the hotel and sufficiently far away that they can find a good place to hide before reinforcements show up. Now, obviously, Coulson's scared to death. He's been sleeping in this hotel for who knows how long, and it's very obvious he's had some nasty nightmares. He'll beg the group for his life and will offer up some interesting nuggets of information in the attempt to bargain. He'll claim that the attack on triumph wasn't his idea. He'll pin it on Archibald Warren, who's a friend of Brigham Young's and a high-ranking member of the Mormon Church. The reasoning for the attack goes all the way back to Marshal Ed, who apparently wronged Warren at some point and supposedly had information about Warren and Young that would have scandalized the church. Ergo, he had to die. Whether Brigham Young was aware of what was going on is debatable, but he argues his orders came directly from Warren. The Muffin Man, he doesn't actually know his name, is working up a plan to take all of the land of the disputed territories and form a country out of it. Once he's done that, with himself installed as the leader, he intends to buy an army and start a new war with both the United States and Confederate States. Coulson isn't sure if the rest of the board is aware of it, but he knows O'Toole knows about it and isn't happy with the Muffin Man because of it. And he calls O'Toole by his name since he knows it. He also shares that someone on the board has connections with the Texas Rangers and has placed a $5,000 bounty on the heads of the group. Therefore, any CSA state or territory they go into will have law enforcement looking for them, and bounty hunters will certainly be trying to catch them outside of the Confederate states. And that is all that Coulson has to share. And let's be honest, it's probably not going to be enough to save him. After everything he's put the group through, they're probably not going to want to let him go. Plus, he's an even bigger liability now than he was before, since he's seen all of them. He's aware of how they all look, and you know he'll tell the Mormons all about him, which will make getting out of Salt Lake City that much more difficult. So let your group do what they will at this point. We're just not going to get into the details in this part of the show. Give each player a red chip for completing this part of the scenario. Once they're finished with Coulson, what happens next depends on how long it took the group to deal with him. So long as they finished within 30 minutes, and yes, 29 minutes, 59 seconds qualifies, They can get out of the hotel before the cavalry rolls in. Now, if they're close to the time, they'll see a dozen heavily armed men charging on the hotel. However, the group can dart through alleyways and get themselves out of the line of sight fast enough they won't be immediately found. But the desk clerk, if they dealt with him and he lived, will be able to give descriptions of as many group members as he saw, so the group will most likely be wanted in the state of Deseret. If they don't get done in 30 minutes, they're going to be dealing with that group of 12, and this will be a good old-fashioned shootout. Now, they can always try something crazy, like making their way to the roof and jumping from building to building to try to get away, but ultimately they're going to have to take down eight of the men before the others will withdraw and regroup. Oh, and if you've been using day nights to this point, stop. All 12 men in this group are hired guns, so the gunslinger template will apply to them. Once the group's away, they can head back to the Golden Dragon Inn, or whatever hotel they were staying at, so long as it wasn't the Salt Lake City Hotel. At that point, they'll have just about enough time to catch their breath before they need to consider their next steps. Now they can try to go after Archibald Warren, but they're going to quickly realize that at this point all they have is Colson's word, and trying to take down a high ranking member of the Mormon church on hearsay would be suicide. Besides, they'll quickly hear that they're wanted, so getting out of town should be their top priority. And since they're wanted, the trains will no longer be an option, so they're going to need to acquire horses and ride as fast as they can for the border. In this case, the border closest to them would be Idaho, and that's a U.S. state, so even if what Coulson has told them is true, they should be safe there. If the group brought their horses with them, things are as simple as mounting up and riding out. If you want to ramp up the tension a bit, do the old die rolling and note taking thing, but we're not going to harass them while they're in town unless they decide to stick around for whatever reason. By the way, if your group decides they just want to go at Warren at this point, you're on your own to create something for that. That means you will need to get the city of Gloombook. So if you didn't already pick it up, head over to PEGINC.com and get yourself a PDF. I will say this. We will come back to Mr. Warren another time, Because, and this is a secret between you and me, the group will eventually gather enough information to be able to come after him with cause. So in this case, patience is definitely a virtue. However, if they insist, you should treat this like a suicide mission. Between day nights, hired gunslingers, and legitimate law in town, they should be getting harassed at nearly every turn. And to quote Ivan Drago from Rocky IV, if they die, they die. Sorry, them's the brakes. But I don't think your group's going to do that. I, I know mine won't because while they may do crazy stuff from time to time, they're smart enough to know a suicide mission when they see one and will typically regroup until they find a better way to deal with it. There will be an encounter about 10 miles outside of town as a number of Nauvoo Legionnaires equal to the number of group members will attempt to arrest them. The group will have to deal with them before they can make it to the border, but through a combination of shooting and riding hard, they should be able to get away and cross the border. Now, it's 99 miles to the border, which means that by normal travel time, it should take about two and three quarter days. However, the group will be riding hard that first day, so let's say they put 50 miles in. That's going to be taxing on the horses, so they'll have no choice but to put in an eight-hour camp at some point. They're also smart enough to know they can't do another 50 miles in a day or else they risk killing the horses, so day two can be 35 miles, and they'll make the Idaho border right about lunchtime on day three. If you want to put an encounter in here, go ahead and do it. I'm not going to do it, though. At this point, give each player in your group a white chip. So, having escaped Salt Lake City and the band chasing them, the group finally has a moment to catch their breath and figure out what's next. If they're working for O'Toole, they need to get back to Denver and report back. From a traveling perspective, we know it was 600 miles from Denver to Salt Lake City, and we know the group ran another 99 miles to get to Idaho. However, on the return trip, they'll need to skirt the Deseret border, which means they can't go in a straight line. So they'll have to make their way to Wyoming, then through the mountains and into Denver. For the sake of argument here, let's throw another 100 miles onto our total and bring it to 799 miles. That means it's going to take them about 20 days to get back to Denver. If you want to play all that out, throw in four or five encounters with bounty hunters along the way, using the Gunslinger template, and reward your group with a white chip each for each encounter they survive. However, I can tell you that I'm probably going to skip over that since I don't know if I have the patience to run it all. Again, there's a reason I'm the bad GM. Once they're back in Denver, they can head back to the cafe where they met Burt Norwood and leave a message for him. How they choose to word that is up to them, but I would encourage them to keep it as basic as possible and to not say things that might draw unwanted attention should somebody decide to read something that's not for them. They'll also have to get hotel rooms, but they've done this Denver thing before, so they know where they want to stay. Also, if they try to contact Teresa again, they're not going to get a reply. And if they try to find her by other means, it appears that she's not in town. Whether that's permanent or not, they cannot determine. One day after they leave their message, Norwood gets back with them. He wants to meet and gives an address, 345 Western Avenue. The meeting is for 10 a.m., that very morning they'll find it's in the poorer section of town and is a house that if they check hasn't been lived in for at least a year if they do a recon they don't see anything out of the ordinary norwood is in the house when they arrive and he has a table and chair set out for the group he apologizes for the increased secrecy but lets them know that quote they did the mayor proud and quote with their actions in deseret and he assures them that the board will be taking care of that pesky little bounty for you However, he still suggests that the group stay out of Deseret for a while, until we can get things sorted out. If they share any of the information Coulson gave them, he'll admit that O'Toole knows about the deal with the Muffin Man, but claims to know nothing about the situation with Warren. However, he states he will pass the information along to O'Toole, and will provide the group with any information O'Toole wishes to share with them. He also has another job for the group from O'Toole. He's willing to pay them this time. The mission is to head to Little Rock, Arkansas, and eliminate Ezekiel Monroe, a.k.a. the Muffin Man. Norwood passes them paperwork, giving them as much information as O'Toole could provide, as well as $3,000. He adds that, The mayor wants you to know that he'll pay you another $3,000 when you can confirm Mr. Monroe is no longer a fly in the ointment. If the group chooses to pass on this, he'll just shrug and say, Well, the mayor will be disappointed, and that will conclude any business he might have had with you moving forward. At that point, he will excuse himself, and the group will have to figure out what to do next. By the way, if they decide to take the money but not the job, there are half a dozen men, using the soldier template, waiting outside to ambush them when they leave. And those guys will get the jump on the group, which means that regardless of the draw, at least one of them will get a shot off before the players can. Play that out, but no chips will be rewarded since the group tried something underhanded and managed to get away with their lives and maybe the money as well. If they're so inclined, they can try to hit O'Toole if they want. Refer back to episode 12, which is where we covered how to hit him in his house. And they'll have to hit him there because without Teresa around to help them, it's the only option they've got. If they choose to keep things above board, Norwood will thank them and tell them to leave a message for him once they complete the job and return to Denver. The papers give the location of Monroe's estate, which is about a day outside of Little Rock. They also provide numbers on his workers, his protection, and gives a few names of friendly observers inside Little Rock that could be utilized for more information. We cover those names when we get further into the Little Rock mission. Okay, if the group already burned their bridges in Denver, then they're going to have to decide what they want to do next. If they didn't already hit O'Toole, they're going to try to do it. If they didn't kill anyone during their previous stint in town, they aren't going to be wanted so they can get in and get a hotel and plan. Teresa is still not there, so they're going to have to hit him at home. If they killed anyone during their previous stint, they'll have to disguise themselves, sneak into town, and stay in the poor district. Planning will still be the same, but they'll need to be more cautious about being out in public. For that, go with the roles you feel they need to make to stay hidden and disguised. They might decide to head to Little Rock, and that's gonna be first on next week's show, so we'll cover it then. If the group really wants to go to Albuquerque, try to encourage them not to do that since it is a CSA state, and therefore their bounty is in full force there. It's also in in Arkansas, but the argument could be made that they can get to Arkansas and maybe get done before too many people know about it. Albuquerque will be covered either next week or the week after. So if we're holding up your group, feel free to sketch out an encounter for your group that'll work. Just create a character you think best defines the Butcher, a.k.a. Zebediah Thomas. There should be folks in town that the group can befriend to get information from to make their plans of attack. Also, there will be Texas Rangers and bounty hunters looking for them, so keep that in mind as well. Otherwise, work with what we've got at present, and I promise you we'll get to Albuquerque soon. But we're going to stop building today at this point. So for the first time in a month, it's time to have a campaign recap on the program. Of course, before we can pick up where we were last week, we need to recap what the group did the last time we got together. We picked up our game with the group having just arrived in Denver. They got themselves hotel rooms and immediately headed for the wealthier part of town as they believed that's where the widow would be found. After a lot of searching, Scott finally just called out, okay, we're here, show yourself. As if on cue, a young boy approached him and asked his name. Once he gave it, the boy handed him a letter and told him that it was for him. It was from the widow and she provided an address for a meeting the following morning. The group checked out the provided address, and it was in a gated, very exclusive part of town. They then ran errands, did some drinking, and gambled a bit. Scott did something very specific. He bought some cigars and then went and had a vest made with pockets for the cigars. Through their drinking and carousing, they noticed someone wearing the uniform of a high-ranking member of the Colson Corporation, and Scott and Gabe recognized him from their meeting with Francis Colson. They followed him and were ultimately able to corner him and get some information. It was Philip Conway, who was the quartermaster for the corporation. He told the group he was supposed to be in hiding and awaiting word from Coulson, but he got bored and needed a drink. They tried to get him to kill himself because of what he was responsible for, but he wouldn't do it, and they got him ultimately to decide to change his ways and better the world, and he left next up they went to their meeting and by the way scott informed me what that vest was actually for when he was on his way to the meeting he told me that he had put dynamite into those pockets that had been sewn into the inside of it had all of the debt cord tied together and had it where he could just light it from his pocket yes ladies and gentlemen it was a suicide vest after a test of the butler involving drinks the widow herself joined them There was a lot of tension early on, and she acknowledged that she knew they wanted her dead. However, she told them a lot of things that changed her mind, ultimately. She informed them that the deputy she killed north of Tucson was a serial killer from Kansas City. The cowboys she poisoned were very bad men. The associates of Colson's that she killed were also very bad men. She concedes that she was once an associate of Colson's, but can't be anymore because of his actions. She acknowledges triumph and tells the group she was trying to get there ahead of Colson to try to stop it. She destroyed the compound when she failed, hoping she got Coulson. However, she was quickly aware she had failed at that as well. During the course of the conversation, she let it be known she has a very old Manitou in her head and has been around since around the fall of the Roman Empire. She's made it her unlife's mission to go around the world and try to eliminate as much evil as she can from it. She also admitted that she needs to leave the country because she's been here too long, but she needs to see Coulson die before that can happen. She and the group make a deal. They take out Coulson, and she provides them with a $5,000 line of credit with Smith and Robards. She also gave Gabe $39,500 of his money back, and Gabe was just fine with that. She's also going to try to get them some sort of protective talismans. She gave them an idea of which hotel to check out to find Tobias Allen, who we know as Coulson's right-hand man. Specifically, she told them to get the key to the safety deposit box that Allen holds, She finished her part of the deal by telling them to leave her a message at a local cafe when they're finished and she'll bring their payment. One more note, as they left, Scott held his hands to the ground outside the house and he felt an evil unlike anything he'd ever felt. In fact, he barely avoided a disaster for himself. So that's where we left off last session. So as we start this week, the group is leaving the area of the widow's home and headed for the hotel to go after Tobias Allen. They know what hotel he's staying at, thanks to the information provided to them by the widow, and they manage to catch a glance at him as he's coming out of the hotel and heading across the street to a restaurant. Rather than cause some sort of scene in the street, the group decides to let him get inside, get seated, and get served, then they enter. In fact, they got inside just as Tobias Allen was having a glass of wine poured at his table, Needless to say, when he saw Scott and Gabe sitting at his table, he lost his appetite. And for those who might think I was going easy on the group, I made a guts check for Alan, as he has seen the two characters before and most certainly didn't think he'd ever be seeing them again. Not only did he fail, he bombed. So he decided, in his mind and in that moment, that he was going to basically do whatever the group wanted if he believed it would keep him from dying. As the conversation progressed, the group mentioned something about the safety deposit box, and he readily handed over the key. He mentioned that the box is in Coulson's name, but that nobody at the bank has ever seen him. He also said that Coulson keeps his money at the First National Bank of Denver and suggested that the group could hit that account. He also noted that his name is on the account, and since Gabe resembles him a bit, he really doesn't they might be able to pull it off. The group continues the conversation for a bit with Alan getting progressively more drunk as time goes on. Ultimately, he decides to leave the table and asks that the group's food be placed on his tab, which he noted is being paid for by someone else. Oh, and one more thing before Alan left. The group demanded he hand over his hotel room key, which he did, and that comes back to play in a minute. With the safe deposit box key in hand, the group headed off to the bank to check out the box. When they got to the bank, they met with the bank employee and Gabe pulled off his rolls to pretend to be Colson. He also had to answer the security question, which was, much as we laid out in the campaign creation, a brain teaser. But I changed it from the one that I gave you there because, well, my group listens to the podcast. So the question I used was, what has cities but no houses, forests but no trees, and water but no fish? Now, Gabe and Scott were the only ones who went into the bank, so those players were the only ones who could work out answering the puzzle. After about 10 minutes of watching them try to figure out, I allowed them to make knowledge rolls at their request to see if they could think of something. Because as Scott pointed out, our characters are probably smarter than we are. They made the rolls, but I decided I wasn't going to just give it to them. Instead, I gave them a clue. You've worked with things that are laid out like this before. You've dealt with them more than once. And after another minute, you could see the light bulb go off for Scott. He had the answer, a map. They got access to the box and took the papers out of it that we laid out in the creation episode concerning that. We did that about two weeks ago, so check out that episode in the archives. As they left the bank, they realized they weren't going to just be able to go into the next bank and get Colson's money out because they were going to need some form of ID or some signature, which annoyed them a little bit. So they went back to Alan's hotel room to discuss the situation with him. They found him drunk and trying to figure out how to get back in his hotel room. They let him in, explained the situation, and he provided them with a bank book that has his signature on it. Everyone in the group made rolls, bluff, or sleight of hand, I think is what I used, to see who could best copy Alan's signature, and Gabe had the best roll. So, they headed to the First National Bank to access the account. Gabe signed in as he needed to and found out from the clerk that Colson had emptied out the account a few days prior and said something about Montana being lovely this time of year. Now, the group was really annoyed and decided to go have a word or two with Mr. Allen. They returned to his hotel and realized that in the time it had taken them to get to the bank and back, he'd grabbed all his stuff and gotten out. In fact, there was a maid in there cleaning up. Before they left, they asked if anything was left behind of value and were told that that was a no. After thinking about the fastest way to get out of town without your own horse, they decided Alan must have taken a stagecoach, especially since it would be a while before a train left. They grabbed their horses and headed south to catch the stage. They caught it about 45 minutes outside of town and got them to stop peacefully. They asked Alan to get out and brought him up to speed on what had happened. Allen apologized, but insisted he didn't know about Colson emptying the account. He swore up and down that he had no clue. And insofar as Montana, he stated that there was no way Colson would go to Montana because he wouldn't sit in a saddle for 600 miles to do that. As he put it, Colson's more of a train fellow. He hinted Salt Lake City might be a place he'd go, but he wouldn't swear on it. Satisfied Allen didn't set him up, they allowed him to get back in the stage, apologized to everyone for the delay, and went back to town. Deciding they needed more information, they left a message for the widow, who replied with a time and a location to meet at. For the record, the meet spot was the cafe we'd laid out for Teresa's meeting with the group a couple weeks ago. She agreed with Alan's assessment of the situation. There's not a chance Colson went to Montana. Salt Lake City would be the more likely choice due to previous business she'd heard hints about with the Mormons. She also notes that O'Toole is pretty upset with Coulson, and it occurs to the group that if they can get O'Toole's blessing, they might get more information than what they already have. The widow promised them she could get them a meeting either with O'Toole or his right-hand man, and told them to head back to their hotel and wait for a message. They got one later in the day, and were told to meet back at the cafe within a half hour. Now, I played Mr. Norwood a bit differently than we laid him out, by the way. While I described him exactly as we laid him out, I also gave him a bit of a neurological shake and had him using canes to walk when he left the cafe. The group met, discussed the situation, and got Norwood's attention when they mentioned Triumph. He assured the group he'd check with O'Toole and would get back to them within the hour. True to his word, he brought a letter from O'Toole, which we laid out in our Denver episode. They agreed to head to Salt Lake City and hop the train. Upon their arrival in the city, as requested, they checked into the Golden Dragon Inn and left a message for Abe. They got their reply, which we discussed in the creation part of this episode, and went to check out the Salt Lake City Hotel. The group as a whole decided to head into the hotel and started with asking about Coulson. While the desk clerk tried to deflect the question, they kept asking and got the attention of the Day Knights in the lobby, who profanely told the group to get out of the hotel. They also left a message for Coulson, telling the clerk to have him contact them if he needed to see them or needed their help. They decided to hit a restaurant near the hotel to regroup and plan what they were going to do next. As they were doing it, they asked me about the layout of the hotel, and I provided the information that we built earlier in the episode. As they plotted and planned, a very meek-looking woman, dressed in the clothing of the cleaning staff at the hotel, made her way in and approached the group. She informed them that there's no way Colson would get the message and she informed them that there are 10 day nights in the hotel and she laid out where they were. She also pointed out that they just had a change of men and would have another one in the morning. She overheard them talking about burning down the hotel and asked that if they were going to do that to just let her know so she could get the innocent staff members out. She left and the group was still trying to decide whether they wanted to access Coulson's hotel room from the roof of the closest building or just set the building on fire and shoot day nights as they came out. Ultimately, lighting the building on fire won the day. They did it and they made sure they had men on the front and back doors plus three on the roof across from Coulson's window. Tyler, who was on the back door, and Max, Aniston, and Scott, who were on the roof, saw Colson jump out the window of his hotel and plunge three stories to the cobblestone of the alleyway. Needless to say, the rolls for damage meant he was dead on impact, but Tyler still checked to see if he could be saved. He died, and Scott dragged him a block or two away so he could use his power to ask a question or two. Colson gave them the Muffin Man's plot, but no other information, but the overall point of Scott doing what he did was to let Colson knew they were the ones who got him in the end. They left his dead body in the alleyway and returned to the Golden Dragon Inn. They'd planned on heading to Smith and Robards in the morning, but Abe slid a note under their door and alerted them that someone had seen them around the hotel when it caught fire and a large bounty had been issued for them. So they decided to run Hellbent for Leather for Montana and they decided to head for Montana because I screwed up and didn't say Idaho. That's on me. They got out of town without issues, but ran into the Navoo Legionnaires just shy of the border. However, they were able to talk their way through it and eventually crossed the border. They decided to return to Denver to report their success and knew they needed to skirt Deseret. As we said earlier, it was gonna take 20 days, but we fast forwarded to their return to Denver because like I told you, I didn't wanna play through that. They found a hotel checked in, and got food, baths, clean clothes, and sleep. They also got word to Norwood that they needed a meeting. They wound up meeting him back at the cafe, reported their success, and Norwood reported that the reports of the fire had made the newspapers in Denver. The group requested a meeting with O'Toole, and ultimately they got it. They went to the mayor's residence, and O'Toole sat to discuss business with him. First off, he told him not to worry about the bounty, as he would take care of it. However, he suggested they stay out of Deseret for a month or so. He laid $3,000 in cash in a folder on the table and requested that the group kill the Muffin Man. As they do, the group asked for some background. Now, not having that together yet, because for our show, we'll have that background in next week's episode, I had O'Toole give him this. The Muffin Man seems like he has almost two separate personalities, as one is very private and withdrawn, while the other is an extreme extrovert, pervert, and makes risky decisions. The group agrees to head for Little Rock, and O'Toole states he's looking forward to working with them more in the future. We ended the night with the group leaving the mayor's home. So, next week is going to be a campaign build show only, since there's no game this coming Saturday. We should get the majority of the Little Rock campaign covered, and we might just get to Albuquerque if time permits. I need to note that all Deadlands Classic materials we referenced during this show are the copyrighted and trademarked property of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're looking for another podcast to check out, I highly recommend Role Playing History, which is the show where we deep dive games, companies, and game creators in ways you just can't get online. Check out Role Playing History wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Hit them up for license free, royalty free music for your next project. Bad GM's campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube Bad GM Productions, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we take our group to Little Rock, so saddle up and get ready. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.